0: is the house that Funk built. Groove style.
1: Uh, uh, come on. Uh, hey, kids! I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, I learned a little knowledge, especially of a language, can be a very dangerous thing. And that after a lifetime of trying to figure out who I was, I still had no effing clue. This week, fish out of agua and us, our stories enter the 21st century with sass, class, and shaking our fundio. So let's get into the groove with Fatboy Slim's 2004 remix of Groove Armada's 1999 "I See You, Baby," shaking that ass, shaking that ass. Woo! With fish out of agua, in the year two thousand, when this next story opens, Manhattan's Lower East Side was at the peak of its ten-year reign as the center of the Lower East Side's alternative comedy and performance scene. There were about a dozen theaters and art hall spaces in the neighborhood bordered by Houston, Allen, Essex, and Delancey Streets, where on any given night you could see anything from stand-up, sketch, and variety comedy to spoken word, music, and burlesque, to classic, experimental, and new theater, or all of the above at one of the many open mic nights that also ruled at the time, the top two being Faceboy's open mic each Sunday at Surf Reality and Reverend Jen Miller's, Reverend Jen Miller's anti-slam every Wednesday at the Collective Unconscious Theater. Since the mid-1990s, I had tried on as many... <clears throat> Hats, so to speak, as I could, and was performing sometimes two or three times a week, along with, like many of my other fellow performers, juggling both a day job with the night job. And towards what end, you might ask? Talent Scouts were now showing up regularly at the open mics, and people like Amy Poehler, Mark Marin, the Scar Brothers, Amy Stiller, Christian Shawl, among many others, came from these open mics. And as for me, I was doing everything I could to get better and better at what I was doing, so I would be ready when it happened, (laughs) whatever that was. Only I had no idea there would soon be no there there, as our world and everyone else's would soon be changed forever. And now, Chapter 47 of Fish Out of Agua. Walking in Coquito Wonderland. Christmas time, glasses clinking, cause it's time to start drinking. A beautiful sight, this bottle so bright, walking in Coquito Wonderland. Go away, Borden's eggnog, champagne punch, and Swedish glug. What I have right here is Latino cheer, walking in Coquito Wonderland. In a blender, you can put some vodka, only if you want a bellyache. Take a tip from Kalman, you'll be smarter to add as much dark rum as you can take. Have a shot, you'll be smiling, or oh, not too much, or oh, you'll be flying. It's 500 proof, you go through the roof. Walking in Coquito Wonderland, one more time. Walking in Coquito Wonderland I sang this song on stage, wearing a hat that was a cross between a fully lit menorah and a Christmas tree, trailing a 30-foot extension cord behind me, and carrying a half gallon of Carmen's Triple X Coquito as the audience cheered. It was December of 2000, and I was Carmen Mafungo. The Lower East Side's one and only Latin lady was staff on her head. My husband Adam and I had once spent our Friday nights drawing in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We now spent them in Surf Reality as members of the Producers' Asylum, a small group of performers responsible for producing a show each month. Ours was the Carmen Mafungo Show. Shortly after I started going to the open mics at Surf Reality and Collected Unconscious, its sister theater, I became obsessed with Carmen Miranda. Adam and I had seen a documentary on her life called Bananas is My Business, and I was hooked. What really intrigued me was learning that she wasn't Brazilian at all, but a Portuguese Portuguese immigrant whose family had moved to Brazil when she was a small child. The knowledge that someone could completely embody and be a national symbol of an entire culture without actually being born into that culture Bob- boggled my mind. Adam bought me a videotape of the documentary, and I watched it repeatedly. I thought, well, what if the spirit of Carmen Miranda came back for our generation in the body of a Puerto Rican from New York City named Carmen Mofongo? Me! Most cultures have their own version of heart attack on a plate. Americans have bacon cheeseburgers. Italians have fettuccine Alfredo. Jewish culture has chopped liver and schmaltz. Southern African Americans have chitlins. But the closest thing to a national dish we of Puerto Rican heritage have is mofongo. A mound of tostones, green plantains, double fried and mashed with shredded pork meat and crispy pork skin, olive oil, garlic, and seasonings, sometimes with stewed chicken, shrimp, or more pork underneath, and a piquant, tomato-y, griolla sauce on top. Mmm. I decided to give my new character, Carmen Mofongo, Grandma Mari's accent, and my vocabulary the idea of a thick Spanish accent saying words like juxtaposition, gangrene, and xenophobia cracked me up. And it was also a bit of a personal political statement. It seemed to me that every foreign accent was considered elegant to most Americans, except a Latin one, which in all media was generally depicted as, uneduc- un- as uneducated and unlovely. So in my own small way, I was going to break that antediluvian cultural stereotype. Ooh, antediluvian, I thought. I gotta add that word in, too. I started practicing. Adam said, I think it's a dumb idea. No one's gonna get it. People are stupid. I didn't listen to him. In 1998, Carmen Mafungo made her debut at Surf Reality, and a star was born. Or at least a Lower East Side icon. For the next five years until Surf Reality closed its doors, Adam and I were a theatrical team. I wrote the shows, he made the props, including Carmen's signature collection of hats. The hats were reinterpretations of Carmen Miranda's various headdresses. Before long, Carmen Mofongo had a wardrobe of over 20 and proudly wore them all. From the classic dinner hat... Adorned with components of a stereotypical Latin meal, including a packet of sazon, a pork chop or chuleta, a can of goya beans and a pack of Newports for afterwards. To the pastel art deco recreation recreation of a Miami Beach hotel, complete with palm trees and dolphins. To Adam, who was now known as the millinery mastermind's masterpiece, Carmen's brain. A rubber brain underneath a plastic dome. It was similar to the Abbey normal brain in Young Frankenstein, but with Coney Island sideshow inspired graphics and signs for each of its sections sex, drugs, rock and roll, Boolean mathematics, Eastern philosophy, and pork. Even Adam had to admit I was onto something. The character in the shows became a popular cult figure figure on the Lower East Side performance scene, appearing at least once a week, in one space or another, along with our monthly show. In December, we had our biggest extravaganza yet, Carmen Mofongo's Coquito Christmas 2000. For you unlucky ones who don't have a Caribbean Latino in your life, Coquito is the quintessential Puerto Rican holiday libation. A tropical coconut twist on eggnog. It's a Caribbean vacation in a glass. Or more specifically, a delicious, sweet, creamy blend of rum, coconut, rum, milk, rum, eggs, rum, vanilla, rum, spices, and rum. It's very tasty. And the holiday tradition's various recipes are passed down from your ancient abuelo, abuela, tío, or títi, and are family secrets guarded under lock and key. And even though my grandma Mari was a devout Christian woman, she was also practical. When my mother won her building's first television in a church raffle, Abuelita decided, well, perhaps gambling is a scene, but gifts from El Señor were not. When a sanctimonious woman at Abuelita's church chided her for wearing lipstick and having manicures, Abuelita answered, Huh, do you think you glorify Jesus and Gloria a Dios by not taking care of yourself? El Señor looks down on you and says, Mujel, bleach that mustache, and in my holy name, Ugh, shave those legs. And, although drunkenness was frowned on, a little holiday celebration was a blessing. So every Christmas, next to the Prenil, she made sure there was always a bottle or two of her famous secret coquito. I knew that recipe. She never told it to me exactly but I had watched her make it enough times to figure it out and remember how. I carried the holiday tradition with me into my adult life, eventually becoming my family's official coquito maker. Even Titi Ophelia couldn't argue with my skill. I also brought a bottle to work every holiday season. For the past five years, my co-workers look forward to their yearly shot of coquito. And each year, there would be the new employee who disregarded the veteran coquito drinker's warnings that it should only be consumed in a shot glass in the smallest portions. This year, it was the new red-headed art director, Caitlin Lowe. I'm from Scotland, she scoffed. We're born drinking whiskey. Spanish drinks are poof. My office mates looked, looked annoyed as she emptied a good portion of the bottle into her water glass. I shrugged. It wasn't long before Caitlin was giggling on the ground at the top of the agency's fancy staircase with her miniskirt and cowboy booted legs askew and her glass drained. This red-headed Scotswoman did not believe in panties or personal grooming. The company president exercised discretion when he caught an eyeful as he ascended the stairs. The production manager, who was directly behind him, did not. And the next day, the entire office knew about Fire down below. A month later, Caitlin took her art directing skills to Miami. Carmofungo's Coquito Christmas 2000 was a big hit. All 50-plus people in the audience had a great time watching her get visited by the ghosts of Coquito past, present, and future, and rescued by Santa Claus and El Diablo. And to top it off, at the end of the show, three audience members who could name all of Santa's reindeer... The Seven Dwarves and the original Seven Astronauts – I was obsessed with reruns of the HBO series From the Earth to the Moon at this time – won their very own personal-sized bottle of Coquito. The rest of the audience was consoled with shots from a full-gallon bottle. If you weren't there, as they say, you missed it. After that night's show, Adam and I were invited to the Christmas party of a well-known performer couple, the JJs short for Janet and Jennifer. They were queens of the neo-burlesques and Lower East Side performance scenes. They had matching nose rings, piercings in places I could barely spell, let alone pronounce, and had gotten engaged exactly six years, six months, and six days after their first date. They were legendary. So were their parties. And I was terrified. Let me explain. Although I was a card-carrying member of the New York City Performance Underground, sometimes people wondered what my home life was like. Did I strut around my apartment in spiked panties while guzzling homemade absinthe and downloading vegan, transgendered amputee porn? Not really. The truth was, after a show, I would go home, take off my makeup, put on my angel fairy jammies, and watch reruns of Star Trek The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. The truth was, I've always been a geek. A sci-fi fantasy geek. I've been to not one, but two Star Trek conventions. I've seen each Lord of the Rings movie at least 20 times and can quote long passages from all of them verbatim. I know the difference between a Wookiee and an Ewok, a Romulan and a Cardassian, and even at times have fantasized about sex with the elves. And for a long time, I believed I was the closeted anomaly in my underground world. When people asked me what I was into, I'd stammer and say, oh, you you know, this and that. And the person usually responded with their sexiest wink, and the variations on these knowing looks just made me cringe, because they didn't know that I was actually just going to go home, make a pot of Earl Grey tea, and read The Two Towers. Again, but when I walked into the J.J.'s living room, I saw front and center, among the skull ashtrays, Rob Zombie dolls, and North, a Norwegian death metal collection, a perfect six-foot-tall, live, balsam fir Christmas tree, with John Luke Picard on top, where the angel should be. I reached up to touch it, and as if on cue, the J.J.'s appeared on either side of me. You like Star Trek, too? The J.J.'s asked in unison. It was as if a deck had opened up in their Fort Greene living room. I had found sanctuary. Adam, though, had not. He sat sulking on a couch as I flitted around the room. Energized, and with a cup of mulled wine in one hand and a plate of Smithfield ham in the other, I eventually plopped down next to him and gushed, Isn't this party fun? It sucks, Adam said. Nobody wants to talk to me. So, you talk to them, I said. Be friendly. You can be friendly. What's wrong with you? Adam had been struggling to find his way as an artist, and I seemed to have found mine as a performer. He enjoyed working with me on the shows, but wanted to be known and appreciated in his own right. Someone had recently made the mistake of asking him how it felt to be Mr. Mofongo. His response? A look of pure death? ensured that no one ever asked him that ever again. I returned to flitting around the JJ's living room, and when I looked back a few minutes later, Adam seemed happy talking with a small group of people. I smiled at him, and he smiled back. <laughs> Everything was wonderful. The party ended, and a new year soon began. We continued with Carmen Mafungo shows. I also wrote my second one-woman show, and was ecstatic when it got booked for an early autumn six week run at a popular East Village Theater. And that first week of September, right before my show was scheduled to open, I impressed producers at MTV with Karma at an open call for a new show requiring an unusual talent. I went dressed in full regalia and proceeded to roll my R's for 30 seconds. I was invited to the callback audition the following Wednesday to meet the pro- other producers the day before my One Woman show was to open. I was floating. I saw it all weekend. After all I had been through, it seemed my life was finally going to come together. But that following Wednesday was Wednesday, September 12th, 2001. There was no callback or any other audition at MTB. My solo show was postponed until the final two weeks of its run in October. All of downtown was still under the cloud of the fallen towers. Hardly anyone came. But I told myself I was lucky. After all, neither Adam or I had lost anyone we loved. We did have a Coquito Christmas 2001 show that December. But things weren't quite the same anymore. For anyone. Okay, so that was barely 15 seconds and not 30. But hey, we got a lot of story to get to today. Okay, so you heard Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak On from her 2001 album, Miss E So Addictive. And the theme song from Star Trek The Next Generation, which Dennis McCarthy adapted from the original series theme. Because why, yes, we absolutely are geeky like that. And now it's time for Fish Out of Agra's Guest Artist of the Week. Ah, oh, You're going to be mad excited to hear this one. And it's a fellow redhead, no less. We're going to take a risk. Ha <laughs> ha, get it? And not give anything else away because we want to let him tell it to you. And here we are with of Bagra's guest artist for this week. I am so excited to bring this man to you guys. Um, I first saw him, actually, on MTV in the 90s on a show called The State. And of course, he didn't know me because I was, like, watching it at home. Yes, I did have cable by then in Brooklyn. We did get cable around 1997. <laughs> and we did. It's so true, though. That's another story. But um, So we met maybe about ten, less than 10 years after that in the arts. I just like saying that because I can. And he saw me in a show, a, a storytelling show. And uh, let me stop blah-blahing and let's get to this interview with the wonderful and the amazing and fellow redhead and cat lover, Kevin Allison.
2: Hello. It's great to be here.
1: Good. I'm so happy. So talk about how we met again. Do you think it was Brad Lawrence and Cindy Freeman uh, yeah, show? Yeah, I
2: think it was a show. That Brad and Cindy had put together. I think it might have been at uh, Underground uh, St. Mark's Underground. Oh
3: yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah.
2: When I f- the under St. Mark's under St. Mark's. Yeah 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 right right. When I first started in storytelling, I was really really touched by how like a lot of people who were doing the Moth and their own little storytelling shows were so welcoming, so receptive, and so like helpful. People like Adam Wade and Brad and Cindy and Peter Aguaro were yes. very, very, like, you know, supportive. Because so,
1: storytellers are better than stand-up. Sorry. <laughs> there's something about the... I don't mean better, this, but, like, we're nicer. We're nicer. Friendlier. It, it comes more supportive. Out of what storytelling is. Yeah. You know, the, the way
2: that you're kind of, like, sharing and opening up about what you really think and feel about. That, that just makes people a little bit more open and a little bit more supportive I think.
1: Yeah. I think so. So when you saw me perform with Brad and Cindy, who I have to say were the other two people at that time that were doing both burlesque and storytelling. <laughs> oh, <right. clears throat> Smart and hot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you were, you, you were telling stories then? You did not have the podcast yet. No. Wait till I tell you, wait till we find out which podcast is is. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, you got him?
2: I was uh, in my old sketch comedy group, The State. Yes. We had a Philosophy that in order to learn how to do something, start doing it and putting it out immediately. Yeah, in di- other words, don't don't you know don't go to school for something
1: DIY like punk
2: exactly like the Ramones. So the risk, my podcast, you in those very first episodes, that's the beginning of me trying storytelling.
1: Oh my god. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So so I was going around to those other storytelling shows at around the same time that I was just starting to do storytelling of my own on, with my own show. Can you
1: put a year on that? Yeah,
2: 2009. Uh, 2009. The summer of 2009 oh, wow. was when it occurred to me I should put this show together. And so that's when I started working on my own stories trying them out at other people's shows and inviting them to come do risk. In August of 2009 was when we had the first Risk live show, and then in October was when we put out the first podcast episode.
1: So, and I remember the first shows were at the Pit, the People's Improv Theater, correct? No, the no? very
2: first shows of Risk were at Arlene's Grocery.
1: Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It was this. Uh, I, you know, had recently lived on Ludlow Street, and I knew about it. It was this little punk rock indie yeah, indie yeah, band yeah. bar. Yeah, yeah. They weren't used to even doing spoken word sorts of shows there, so we did it there, and it was really fun. You know. When I first started Risk, I really relied on a lot of old people that I had known from back when I was on TV so that I knew I could get people to come to see the show. People like Margaret Cho or Mark Maron or... Um,
1: who had the podcast himself? Yeah, and Mark yeah, yeah, Maron yeah. was a was a frequent person at the open mics at Surf Reality yeah, and Luna yeah, Lounge. Yeah, scene. Yes, exactly. I, I knew who he was. I mean, he probably remembered me with someone like with stuff on a head, and he, you know, in yes. the my Carmen Mofungo my days, and he so probably you, said, "Who the hell you, is this?" You now, you
2: and I might have even seen each other at Luna Lounge or Surf Reality way back in the day. Way back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I. I came to storytelling in a very roundabout way because, you know, after the state broke up in 1996, I spent literally 12 years not knowing how to express myself on stage.
1: Are you kidding? I I, I would get
2: get up on stage and I'd play these characters, these sketch comedy characters, these very cartoonish characters, but I was really hiding behind this mask, you know? And, and, And I really, I didn't realize that... I was too afraid to be myself on oh stage. Oh, my God! I never tried stand-up because I was too afraid that I couldn't express my own opinions or observations. And I, I i don't know. I just had too much social anxiety about that. So it took 12 years of failure and, you know, eviction notices and the electricity being turned off and, you know, like, like, just struggling with alcoholism you know like a lot of like hard years in between 1996
1: and 2009 oh my god
2: and it was michael lee and black who said to me stop getting up on stage and playing these crazy characters get up on stage and talk about your own life because it's more interesting than
1: any fiction
2: And I was like... This "Ah." is true.
1: And you can't go off on your lines if it's your story. Exactly.
2: I didn't realize that at first. Because that's one of my first stories is about the time at Luna Lounge when I was playing a crazy, kooky character on stage and forgot my lines and totally freaked out
1: because you blank and And you're like what the fuck do
2: I do I tried to run out of the theater did you really I tried to but I couldn't make it out because
1: the place was too crowded and they forced me back
2: up on stage oh my god so yeah it was true storytelling when I tried that for the first Michael Ian Black said listen tell your own true stories on stage I was like but I'm too gay and I'm too Midwestern and I'm too raunchy and kinky and I'm too... He's like, it doesn't matter. I I said, it feels too risky because I'm too complicated. Risky,
1: that's the definitive word in that sentence. He
2: said, that's the winning formula. If it's risky, people will listen. People will open up if you're opening up. So I was like, all right, the very next week I came back to New York. I was 39, so I was like, all right, what have I got to lose? I'm about to turn 40. I'll try something new. I'll tell a true story on stage. So, Margot Lightman had a show at that time. Margot! Hi, Margot!
1: <laughs> was it Strip Stories? Yes. The one that she did with Julia Rossi? Exactly. I love them. Exactly. Doing doing that show was definitely one of my the highlights that I ever did, because they were just so welcoming and awesome.
2: And that was a show that really dared people to share mm-hmm. this daring stuff, because it was all about your sex life. Yes. So I said, okay, I'll try this, and I'll tell a story about the first time I prostituted myself when I was... 22 years old.
1: Wow. Before
2: the state was picked up for TV. So you
1: were a male hustler?
2: For a weekend.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, that's even better.
2: I tried it three times. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) Right, because you had to, because like, like, yeah, I I get it. It's like, well, you know, you always try something more than once to make (laughs) sure you don't like it. Right.
2: And I, but. I, I promised Margot I would tell this story on her show. And then the day of I called her, I was like, I can't do this. <gasps> I can't do it. I've got to back out. It's too risky. And she said, oh, my God, that's such good news. I was uh, like, what? She said, on the day of the show, someone usually calls me and says, I can't do this. It's too risky. And if I can convince that person to really just go ahead and do it, that's the story that will hit it out of the park.
1: Yes. She's right. Smart lady, Margot.
2: So I told that story that night. And it was like night and day. I did feel like, oh my God, now I sound too gay. Oh my God, now I sound too Midwestern. You know, like all these self-critical things. But I kept pushing past them. And the more I did, the more the audience was opening up to me. The more I could feel this real connection that I hadn't felt when I was playing crazy, kooky characters.
1: That's so stage. crazy. I had a very similar thing happen to me. I used, I was hiding behind Karma for years. And I was taking a solo performance class with Kirsten Ames, who used oh, right, to do right. the, the HBO, the Aspen Comedy Festival right. thing. And everybody was trying to get into that in the early 2000s, 2000, like 2001, mm-hmm. 2, 3. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to work on a, on a solo show, and she's just like, all you do on stage is play a character, you're not yourself. She said, you need to do storytelling, you need to go to the moth. And she dared me to go to the moth. Oh. And she said, Well, you should go watch it a few times first to see what it's like. And I was like, Fuck that. I went, I put my Good name in the hat. For you. I, got, I, got, I didn't mean fuck that to her. I mean, it was like, Fuck that. I'm just going to yeah, do yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I put my name in the hat. I got picked last. I told the story and I won. And there from you that go. point on, I, I, I started learning how to be myself. That is right. High five. Yeah, that's that what, is what so it's cool. all about. Oh my God. Yeah,
2: it was that night walking away. I from wish you. I could
1: say I was 39, but I was a little older than that. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but close, but close. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's... Yeah. it's
2: yeah. The, I am always a big, big fan of those stories of people who, you know, aren't in their 20s or whatever and right. discover a new thing they can yeah. do, you yeah. know? I, those are incredibly important stories about people who are in their 40s or 50s or whatever and, yeah. and are like, wait a minute, I can try this new thing. And
1: it's, and it's great. Yeah. So how did that segue into risk?
2: Well, it was literally... That night, I told that prostitution story at Strip Stories. And I was so thrilled with how it went over. I felt such a different connection to the audience. You know what was interesting? Afterwards, people weren't just saying, oh, that was funny. But afterwards, people were grabbing me and saying, well, I've never prostituted myself. But something you said about your feelings or that thought that went through your head, oh, my God, it triggered this, this memory of this fight i got gotten with my mom when I was in the eighth grade. Like, when you tell a true story... All of a sudden, it resonates with people in ways you might not even be able to predict. Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you're talking about emotional truth. You're talking about like thoughts and feelings that are are really psychologically like hardwired, and, and and it'll just bring things out in people. So I was just thrilled with how well it went over. And I walked. I remember I was walking down Eighth Avenue away from UCB that night, thinking, "That's it, risk." I, I was thinking. I, I mentioned riskiness to Michael and, and I mentioned riskiness to, to Margot, and got such positive. And here this went over. I was like, I've got to create a show where people kind of come out mm. about things that they might not feel comfortable coming out about Right. At. The Moth, or any other show that might run on, say, National Public Radio. Right. I've got to create a show where there's a niche to be filled. I was aware that this storytelling thing was happening, because I had just done one of these shows, but I had never stepped foot in The Moth. And I had not really listened to that much of This American Life. I was just becoming aware that podcasts existed in 2000. Right, that was
1: going to be my next question. It's like, how did you put the podcast together back in 2000? And I remember recording a couple of episodes for the Risk podcast in like a closet and when you were living in Ridgewood. <laughs> yes. And like with a cat on my lap. Yeah. <laughs> not Donkey, the other one. Right,
2: not- yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Boom, oh, Mr. No. Boo.
1: One of the beautifulest cats ever.
2: Yeah. But anyway, no, uh, it was walking away from UCB that night where I was like, okay. I know two things. I know that standing in front of a live audience and telling a story has a real energy to it. So that should be a component of this. But I also know that after 12 years of failing at just, you know, doing little shows in Manhattan, that you've got to reach a bigger audience. Yes. And at that time, I was aware of YouTube. I was aware of podcasts, you know, beginning to become aware of them. So I was like... I should definitely just make this a thing, where I make a podcast where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share anywhere else. The kind of stories you might tell to your therapist or your best friend over a drink, and it's completely unfiltered. It's completely uncensored, Uh, and I'll call it Risk. And I knew, like, right that first night, I was like, okay, some of the stories are going to be hilarious, some of them are going to be traumatizing and terrifying and some will be kind of beautiful and tear-jerking. We'll go all over the spectrum of anything that people, you know, feel like they can confess or whatever.
1: Who was on your first episode? And you know, when was that?
2: It was Mark- October
1: 1980. I mean, uh, October 2009?
2: Yeah, the first episode it ended with Mark Marin cuz he did that very first live show at Marlene's grocery, and he was just—he was about a month or so into his own podcast at that time. So he gave me advice. He was like, "Oh, I'll help you out with this. I'll like, you know, hook you up with the, you know, people to give you advice on what Isn't equipment to amazing? buy and all that kind Each of
1: stuff." Each one, teach one. A, a, a very good storyteller that had a show on Radio Free Brooklyn named Jim Moore did the same thing for me. He trained me on 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 a uh, Hindenburg and showed me how to do it.
2: That's another thing that I got out of storytelling was, you know, back when I was in the state, we had this attitude of. Oh, my God, you know, we, we've got to just do our own thing, and, like, we're, we're competing against everyone else. I feel like today the attitude, at least among storytellers, and at least among me, uh, is, oh, my God, no, 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 support other people, feature other people's stuff yeah. on your show, help, you know, like, like. there's plenty to go around. I, I, I think yes. that... Thinking of anything as a zero sum game is is an old, antiquated, yes. you know, way of thinking. It's about. the patriarchy. Exactly. Smash the
1: patriarchy!
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: No, and it's like definitely each one, teach one, and um, you know, I my belief is that there's plenty of room at the top. Yeah, it's crowded at the bottom.
3: Yeah, and
1: people don't don't believe that. And that they're all struggling and trying to be cutthroat... And like talking shit about each other... And trying to hinder each other... All you got to do is think of it as a ladder... You have one arm up and somebody's pulling you to the next rung and you have one arm down and you're pulling someone up to take your place when you go up. And always remember
2: that if if the opportunity isn't there, then try to start creating it of your own. You know, Try to create something of your own. So
1: how many cities is risk in now? Oh my
2: God. Well, risk is once a month in New York, once a month in Los Angeles, oh, okay. but each month I visit... Two or three different cities with the show. Oh,
1: that's great! Yeah,
2: so I'm going to Burlington, Vermont, this uh, Saturday oh, to do the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. We just in January we were in Houston, Dallas, Austin, and San Francisco. So that was a busy month.
1: And um, now that it's been like going on eight years yeah. of of Risk Podcast. Um, I know this because I started going out with my boyfriend in 2009, and that's one of the stories that I did <laughs> with you about finding love when you're like in your late 40s. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. With, with, with the Magnolia Blossoms. Mm-hmm. But, um, so how many people do you think you've reached now?
2: Oh, we get well over 2 million downloads a month. 2 million downloads. And I think we've had about 55 million downloads overall. That's in the crazy. Whole so this is like... Show.
1: You had no clue that when you stepped on stage at strip stories with Margo <laughs> yeah. and so Margo <laughs> Julia when you hear this
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. I'm just saying, Margot, join me here. So, what are your plans um, going forward with Risk as, as of now? We're coming out
2: with a Risk book, or at least we're. we're... And this
1: is uh, 2017. That we're doing this. We're doing this um, interview uh, on Thursday, March 16th. Wow. Okay. 20, 2017. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. We're coming out. We're hoping we're we're in the process of trying to sell a Risk book. We're talking about some risk. You know, film, TV, kind of things. That's very vague. No, don't know if that will really happen. I'm thinking of creating another podcast. Really, where I'm in conversation with people. A person shares a true story, and then we unpack like how they're dealing with the political situation, Ooh. like what how they're trying to stay sane and healthy, and and. Pro- proactive and productive about making the world a better place. That
1: sounds like an excellent, wonderful, amazing idea. Maybe yeah. consider pitching it to Radio Free Brooklyn for season five. I'll sure. give you your information after we uh, cut. So, um, <laughs> any advice that you have for any people out there who want to, who,
2: who want to do, who want to do, who want to do
1: anything oh for my those, gosh. for those who want to.
2: You know what I would say, just. Put one foot forward and give it a try. You know, never think, oh my God, I can't do that. You know, give it a try. There's always workshops you can take or or you know opportunity like, for example, with storytelling, there are plenty of like you know, slams that you can Mm -hmm. get up at. You can always just make a recording and send it to someone. And
1: yeah. Now, if somebody's listening here and they said, I want to do this and they want to pitch you, where can they find you?
2: They can find me at risk-show.com and and there's a submissions page there where there's even a video of me explaining hey here's what we look for here's how to prepare a pitch here's how to get
1: well to i it. know i'm going to pitch for the coming season all right thanks so much for being on kevin oh my god i have to say i'd love to everybody but i think you must be the bestest one ever i'm giving you a big <laughs> kiss i kiss the gay man i kiss the gay man bye and we're back with fish out of bagua on radio free brooklyn Our next story begins with one of the many letters throughout the book that weren't actually written, but were actually spoken. This is chapter 48 from Fish Out of Agua. Goodbye, Pumpkin. Dear Michelle, I did love you, Pumpkin. I really did. We were so good for each other for so long. Part of me still does love you, but I'm no longer in love with you. There's a difference. The boy you love doesn't exist anymore. He's gone, and I don't know who has taken his place, but I have to find out who he is, or I'll go mad. I may already have gone mad. And that's why I have to leave. Now, before I drown. Before I lose myself. Before there's nothing left of me. I know this is going to come as a shock to you, but you were so preoccupied with your shows and with your writing and with kimchi being sick you just don't see that there's nothing between us anymore the other night after you performed someone came up to me and asked me what i thought and you do you know what i told that person when my wife is on stage i hear her when she's at home i don't hear her i understand the writing and the shows are your career now i know kimchi is dying I understand, but you need to understand. I need to find where I belong, where I belong. I can't lead two lives anymore. I can't. I just can't. I didn't want it to be this way. It just has to be this way. Goodbye. Adam, the hangman. Chapter 49 of Fish Out of Agua. Just in time. If only Adam and I could have talked about all that, before we broke up it was mid-August 2004, a week after Adam's 36th birthday. I went to his new outside art studio despite his protests that he needed to finish a painting. I walked in to find him online on a laptop I had never seen before. We still couldn't afford internet service for our dinosaur iMac at home. The laptop didn't register me register to me at the time. there was something else I had to know. "'What are you going to do now?' Adam asked. "'When Adam told me he no longer wanted to be married, "'I had thrown up, collapsing onto the floor. "'He didn't help me up, or walk me out, "'or say goodbye as I left the studio. "'He wasn't my husband anymore, and hadn't been for some time. Two mutual friends had asked separately "'if I'd seen Adam's MySpace page.' They both turned away when I said he didn't have one. It took a couple of weeks for me to get the courage, but on that afternoon, right before trekking to his studio, I finally looked up his page. He'd been leading a double life from his studio for over a year. He went to clubs and parties I wasn't invited to, with people I didn't know, some of his friends were women, whose comments made clear that they weren't just drinking buddies. My legs and brain somehow worked together to get me from Adam's studio to the A train to the F train and our apartment. I couldn't remember the commute home, and when I eventually came to, I was sitting on the couch staring. I couldn't believe what had just happened. Nearly 14 years of friendship, love, and collaboration had been obliterated in one 15-minute conversation where Adam confirmed, yes, he had been leading another life. It was worse than shock. Worse than pain, worse than being numb. I felt as if our entire relationship had been cancelled out. As if it never existed. I cried all night. At nine o'clock in the morning, I stopped, took a shower, and then went to work, thinking if I hadn't gone to the studio that night, when was he going to tell me? I later found out that Adam had had that MySpace page for over six months, and all our friends knew about it but were afraid to tell me. I don't know what hurt more, the breakup, the betrayal, or the thought that everyone knew it and saw it coming but me. How could I have been such an idiot? How could I not have seen that for the last year we had been leading mostly separate lives? Although we spoke on the phone almost every night, if there wasn't a show I was doing or a family function for us to attend, Adam and I were now spending only "'one or two days a week together. "'He told me he was working on a new group of paintings "'for a show and needed his space. "'And the times I did question his absence, he responded, "'I don't bother you with your work. "'Why can't you let me alone to do mine? "'And for the last nine months, "'my life and my work have been basically on hold. "'For Kimchi, one of the two kittens I got "'when I moved to Brooklyn 16 years before was ill.' Kimchi had been with me since she fit into the palm of my hand, when all I owned was a futon on the floor, a box of 1980s mixtape cassettes, and had eggplants disappearing from my backyard. Kimchi had been with me through unemployment, career changes, car accidents, and my first gray hairs. She was part of the life I had before Adam and before my abuelita and my father died. And I wanted to do everything I could to help her get better. And then, when that was no longer possible, to help her stay comfortable. Adam was going through an emotional ordeal, too. His beloved Aunt Millie, the only one in his family who had truly stuck up for him when he told his family he wanted to be an artist, was also slowly dying. He started staying at his studio more and more. I hardly noticed. I had to give kimchi medicine now three times a day and would go straight home from work to take care of her. Cats and people were dying, and we were broke. Almost our entire meager savings went to pay the vet bills. I resented that Adam wasn't working, and that after me working all day, I went home alone. And I resented having no energy on the days we did see each other. I thought this was just a phase and it would pass. We had been through rough patches before and had always come out fine. Except now... We were fighting almost all the time. Adam was angry that whatever little money we had had gone up a cat's ass. My answer was to drink most of a bottle of wine every night just so I could keep functioning. I was lonely. I was exhausted. I was miserable. But I thought this is just what I needed to do right now. Adam did come when Kimchi was put to sleep, and I know his tears were real. He had known both Boris and Kimchi almost all their lives. Kimchi had always been my cat, but Boris, the little Russian blue kitten whose big poop once saved me from starvation, used to follow Adam around the apartment like a puppy. He sat in Adam's lap while he ate or watched TV, and slept on his feet while he painted in a front room studio. But in the past year, Adam had moved his studio from the front room of the apartment to the building of a couple who had become his new best friends and mentors. He got the space, and I found out later the laptop, in return for doing handyman work and for being the woman's photo assistant. He spent almost all his time with this couple, and the times I did join them, I didn't feel welcome. Earlier that year, I saw a photograph hanging in Adam's studio of the three of them at a backyard barbecue. It had been taken on my mother's birthday a day Adam said he couldn't come with me up to the Bronx because he was busy. At any other time, the warning bells would have rung off the hook, but as Adam said, I was preoccupied. Besides taking care of kimchi, I had discovered storytelling. In January of 2004, on a bet with my then-writing teacher, I'd gone to a competition called a Story Slam, sponsored by an organization called The Moth. It was kind of like a poetry slam, except you told a five-minute story that was judged. This teacher, like Dr. Weber at New York City Community College 25 years before, knew exactly how to motivate me, as the bet was that I didn't have enough nerve to do it. She told me I should watch it before trying, but the first night I went, I put my name in the hat anyway. I was picked last, told a story about Titi Dulce, and I won. Later that spring, I performed in their Grand Slam, where the winning storytellers over the last 12 months competed against each other. I think I came in third, but the night was a blur to me. The day before, Kimchi had been put to sleep. And that night, Adam told a woman in the audience When my wife is on stage, I hear her. When she is at home, I don't. A few weeks after that, I finally came out of my preoccupied days. I realized that Adam and I had been in an an unhealthy place and I wanted to make things right between us. I realized that maybe Adam had felt shut out just the way I had and if there were things I resented about him there were probably things he resented about me too. But we never got that far because Adam's Aunt Millie died and after the funeral he said he needed to be alone and paint through it. And I believed him. I was his wife. It wasn't long after that that I found out about his double life. And then, I wasn't his wife anymore. I continued to work. I continued to perform in my latest incarnation of Karma Mofongo as a burlesque host. I also kept writing and telling stories, winning another slam with the moth, and continuing to go almost every time they had one. Three years passed. And now Boris, who was about to turn 18, had a stroke. Boris had kept me alive those first horrible weeks after the breakup when all I did was cry and chain-smoke and drink and cry and chain-smoke and drink some more. He slept with me every night, purring until I fell asleep and stayed next to me until I staggered up in the morning. Adam had wanted to take Boris with him, but I said no. Boris was the last link left to my old life, to my youth, to the 20th century. I couldn't let him go. I realized, however, that the day was soon coming when I would have to. And I called Adam to give him the option to see Boris and to be there if he wanted when the time came to put him down. Adam and I had barely spoken since the breakup mostly because my initial shock and hurt had turned to anger. And instead of, how could this be? I thought, well, after all we'd been through, I can't believe this motherfucker dumped me. A couple of months after the breakup, Adam came to get his winter clothes. And as he was leaving, I said, you should have given me the chance to fix what was wrong. He just looked at me and shook his head. And I ran into... Our bedroom, and pulled a red heart-shaped clock that had once been on top of our bedroom dresser from the dresser's bottom drawer. On the back of the, on the back of the clock, Adam had written, "Valentine's Day, 1997. See pumpkin, I love you all the time." I blocked the front door to the apartment, and I shook the clock at him, crying, "What happened to this person? What happened?" Adam said, "He doesn't exist anymore." I finally took off my rings and threw them at him. Now it was three years later, and Boris was dying. I was still angry and hurt, angry and hurt. I knew, though, that telling Adam about Boris was the right thing to do. After all, Boris had been Adam's cat, too. Boris, our beautiful Russian blue, was no longer strong like moose, with thick silver-gray fur like a pelt. He was now thin and frail, his coat sparse and dull. When Adam came, I left the apartment to give him time alone with Boris. And when I came back, I could tell Adam had been crying. For the next couple of months, Adam and I began a new relationship. He would come over once a week to see Boris. I'd make us some tea, and we'd make small talk for an hour or so. I remember thinking that in some small way this must be what it was like to be a divorced parent when the only safe thing you could talk about is the child or in our case, the cat. The day we put Boris to sleep, the vet came to the apartment just as she had for kimchi. I picked Boris up to put him on a pillow and he turned his small gray head to me and struggled to get away. I sensed that he didn't want to leave me He didn't want to go. I whispered, It's okay, Boo Boo. It's okay, Bowie. You can go now. Adam's here. After it was over and the vet took the body away, Adam and I sat at the kitchen table and had the conversation we should have had three years earlier. The new life Adam had envisioned hadn't quite worked out the way he'd planned. In the first year after the breakup, he'd lost his art studio and the friends he thought were going to be his mentors. He said that he had been angry and that he felt as if he deserved something he wasn't getting. But he didn't feel that way anymore. He had struggled to find work, a studio, a gallery, relationships, but things were finally starting to fall into place. I wish you had been kinder, I said. I know I was wrong, too, but I was your wife. You owed me the truth. I deserved better. You did, Adam said. I just couldn't. I didn't mean for things to turn out the way they did. They just did. I'm sorry, Michelle. It's just like that sometimes, you know? We sat in the kitchen and cried. For what was and for what could never be again. You can spend a lifetime with someone and never know what goes on in the back corners of that person's mind. What secret fear fuels their secret needs. You can never wholly compensate for or fully understand what monster another person harbors. The beast that if left out of his box destroys everything in its path. We all have one. We all have to face it one day. And sometimes, the monster wins. In those three years I thought I needed to replace Adam with another man and had a new round of fling, transition and mistake. It was even less satisfying now that I was in my mid-forties instead of my late-twenties. The day Boris was put to sleep and Adam and I sat together at my kitchen table, though I thought that I knew that I didn't need to replace Adam. What I needed was to learn how to be alone. I realized people have to go through their own lives in their own way, on their own timetable, and that for some couples the timing doesn't match and i know this will sound cornier than cornflakes and cheesier than the sappiest frank capra movie but it's the truth when kimchi died i lost my husband when boris died i got a piece of him back adam and i are friends now and always will be some people are amazed at our rapport and when they find out what had happened between us they can't believe how we can still be on speaking terms and they don't think that they could have gone forward. I can't speak for Adam, but I can say that I didn't do it for him. I did it for me. Adam and I were lucky. We got a second chance. Some people never even get one. That was the Red Hot Chili Peppers Under the Bridge from Blood Sugar Sex Magic in 1991 under that last story. And that's our show. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. There's just three episodes left before we end this season. Is that cray or what? And if you like what you've been hearing, please go to the Fish Out of Agua show page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the little green button on the bottom that says, Sponsor this show! You can do it for as little as $1 per episode. That's the cost of a cheaper weebo bottle of wine at Trader Joe's in 2004 and today. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we're going to close with a song to honor those we've loved and lost, and all you may have loved and lost, too. No one gets away from life unscathed, kids, no one, and memory is at best bittersweet, like this song from Pink Floyd in 1975. We'll see you next week.
3: Do you think you can tell?